Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Grin. Today, we're going to have an incredible episode. And there were two big news events last week that we have to cover. And you have to wonder which one we're going to cover first. Is it affirmative action or the riots in France? And we're going to go with the riots in France as the first topic to discuss. We have three topics to discuss before we get to the Cotton Elite questions. So be on the lookout for that. But the first topic is the riots in France. Really, what we're seeing in France is their own version of the George Floyd revolution that happened here in America in 2020. But there are crucial differences there. And now, why is France erupting into chaos where you have rioters going around, burning down police buildings, schools, even trying to attack prisons to free the prisoners? Uh, you know, there are real attacks on government institutions. There was a mayor's home who had, you know, he was not there. It was in a suburb of France. And the Riders broke into the home and chased his family with his wife and his young children and were shooting fireworks at him and the wife was severely injured in that attack. There's a lot of this going on and they're laying siege to town to town halls where a lot of the gov local government is and this is just spreading everywhere like I've heard from some people in France who are saying that like you know they're not even a central area you know not an area where there would even be uh the magical elements of France, French society coming through and, you know, outside their apartment, they're witnessing violence and, you know, chaos is going on. So it's spreading around. And you even had that a little bit in George Floyd Revolution, too, where, you know, there were random places all throughout America that were witnessing riots. Like, it, for example, in just in Virginia, pretty much every place in Virginia with more than 50,000 people or even maybe 30,000 people had riots and disturbances like in Manassas, Virginia, which is, a, you know, quiet, largely quiet suburb of D.C., way outside of D.C. It's like 30, at least 30 minutes away uh, if you're driving fast. And there were riots there. There were riots in Lynchburg. There were, well, the, you know, Newport News, Hamp uh, Hampton Roads area, that's <laughs> no surprise there are riots there. It's very magical there. But Richmond, there were riots, very magical place anyway. But there were all throughout the country, all throughout the country, there were random places. Lynchburg was a surprising because it's not that black. But they even had, you know, things that could be counted as riots or aggressive protests. And it was just like the same. I knew, you know, random places throughout the South, you know, if anywhere, you know, there's like a largely quiet mid-sized city with like 50,000 people. And they had, you know, aggressive disturbances and some minor looting. So it really was happening everywhere you went, you know, very few places, unless they were very white and rural, you know, like the Mountain West areas, Idaho, uh, the Dakotas and elsewhere, you know, they didn't really have much writing and very rural area, white rural areas didn't have much, but anywhere where there were magical elements, um, anywhere there was a city of, you know, at least a hundred thousand or more people, you know, there was, uh, you know, violence and riots and aggressive demonstrations there. And so France is witnessing that in a similar degree. So what are the riots over? And similar to George Floyd, there is a George Floyd here, a man of a long criminal record of dubious uh, reputation who was killed by police in a, while committing a criminal act or while acting on suspicious behavior. The character, his name is Nahel M. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. It's, an Al, it's like an Algerian youth who, even though he's only 17, he has a long criminal record. I think he has over 20 encounters with police uh, by the time he is 17, so uh, he's uh, on his way to being a rocket engineer. But he 
when he this incident is over is that he was stopped by police but he refused to comply and in a chase with police he allegedly endangered a cyclist and a pedestrian and when they finally pulled him over he's still refusing to apply and a police officer shot him now the police officer has been very you know like i'm sorry that i killed him you know i'm very you know being very apologetic about it but of course that's not doing nothing to quell the riots and even when this first started with the riots like everyone was rushing out to condemn him similar to what happened with Derek chauvin and floyd you know uh, you know, you had all these politicians lining up to condemn Chauvin. None of them changed their mind. But, you know, Macron and most of the mainstream politicians were all coming out to saying, oh, you know, this is outrageous. We will never accept this, that we kill police and we can't allow this. You know, people on the right, you know, Marine Le Pen and others, you know, Zemmour have all been pretty solid on this issue. But initially they were. But due to how bad the riots are, uh, people are changing their tone, which is a big difference from George Floyd's uh, revolution. So I contacted some Frenchies to get some opinion on it. And one guy provided some very good details. And I promised I would highlight his account, even though I do have to respect his account. It's all in French. A lot of European nationalists, all tweet, a lot of them tweet out in English. Um, there's some fans we've had on our podcast who tweet all in Finnish, but mainly they're in the online right sphere. But all the Frenchies all tweet solely in French. Like if they have an English language tweet, it's like one once in a long time. Like even the big accounts like Damien Rue, uh, he tweets only in French. But I, I did see him tweet in English to Elon Musk over Elon Musk uh, rate limiting. Uh, that's like the first time I've ever seen him. But this guy... Uh, you've got, you know, Twitter translates this stuff. He highlights some other things, but I've con connected with him before. And his account is Katsunin3000, and that's K-A-T-S-U-N-A-N-3000. So give him a follow. There's a lot of great French accounts. One thing is a problem with the French is that um, not a lot of these guys are connected with that international right-wing sphere. I think it's because, and I, I respect this, is they don't really like... Um, you know, they don't really like speaking English. They really insist on speaking French. And the whole international right-wing sphere, everything is in English. And so they don't really want to, you know, share their language. There's a ton of Germans who are involved in the online right sphere. Uh, Eugippius, uh, Oigippius, I think, is one of them. Um, some others, there's a lot of Germans who are involved. And so they'll tweet in English. They'll sometimes have some German tweets, but most of it's in English. And if you want to go and see what's going on in Germany, there's guys there. Same with Scandinavia and a lot of other places. But when it comes to the French, they're <laughs> very insistent on speaking French, which I uh, you know, it's a separate topic. I do think a lot of the leftism comes how well, how fluent your nation is in English and how much of your nation is like conducts its business in English and whether all your radio music on the radio is in English. It is a sign you're about to be colonized. So one thing is like the French are a little bit better than a lot of other Europeans, I think, is their insistence on uh, borrowing English usage and looking down on using English in their country. So it's something to respect. Uh, but I do. I don't. I don't understand French at all. I can sort of read German, but uh, I can't read French at all. But regardless, he provided some interest, uh, some really good information on this because it's hard. As like for any of these news events, it's hard to find stuff on the ground, and you really have to go to these guys who are experiencing it and have our views there. And you know, I was wondering, like, hey, what are the? Do you think are the differences between the George Floyd Revolution from using and overseas versus what you're seeing there? And he was making the point 
that there is a much stronger backlash towards these riots in France than there were in America in 2020. You know, he showed a poll to me that's saying that 70% of French support sending in the military. <clears throat> you have to remember is that sending in the military was incredibly, incredibly controversial during the 2020 riots. Now, a slight majority did support sending in the military during the 2020 riots, but that was not reflected in the discourse at all because only, you know, it was like a 52%, according to one poll I saw in June or very early June, like the first week of June. But the, that was not how the the people, and maybe you can blame media manipulation, but anytime there was a strong response to the riots, there was more backlash against the response than there was to the riots. Like, remember, like Trump that weekend, I think it was June 1st, you know, after a long week of riots and like destruction in D.C., he used like, a strong response, which wasn't even the military because the military refused to be deployed by Trump. There was an effective coup against Trump where, you know, Trump was like, I want to use the military. The military is like, you can't use us. And Bill Barr had to find like prison guards and even some guys who are like special forces volunteers to be the special riot squad to protect the White House from the rioters. And the rioters were right outside the White House, you know, and, you know, vandalizing statues. They were even trying to take down an Andrew Jackson statue and other things. And, you know, causing chaos and, you know, Trump Monday, you know, dispersed them with a strong response and smoke grenades and all those, all those things. Uh, I guess flash grenades would be the proper term, but, you know, standard riot control behavior. And that was like, you know, considered like fascism. Everyone was opposed to it. And even the people who are calling for lethal force against the rioters face more consequences than the rioters. There was an article published back in 2020 that highlighted all the south carolina public employees this is a red state who got fired and there was like two dozen people who were fired that they highlighted and it could go down the list there was like people who were like a janitor at a government facility or like a school teacher and all these types of people and they were all fired for simply saying shoot the protesters shoot the right well no they're not protesters they're rioters shoot the rioters like use lethal force and people were fired over that and of course most rioters didn't even get arrested didn't even get arrested. You know, they were throwing Molotov cocktails, attacking police, let off without a scrap. And even if they were arrested, a lot of them were released, charges dropped. You know, most of the people who were arrested during the riots and a lot of these cities, Minneapolis, elsewhere, you know, char all the charges were dropped against them because it's politically unpopular to do so, at least in those locales. And even, you know, in comparison with, you could say that France is worse writing because there's a lot of targeted government buildings, which I could say there were government buildings targeted during the, um, during the riots. Um, you know, the most famous example is the Portland Federal Courthouse, which was under siege where they're throwing Molotov cocktails and stuff. And the media portrayed this as a justified response to evil Trump's fascist use of federal law enforcement to go after these riders and really these federal law enforcement guys weren't doing you know much of anything besides crowd control while they're getting like pelted with rocks and like molotov cocktails being thrown at this federal courthouse and they're all like oh this is justified they have a point and then you know media was buying this stuff of like oh there's these moms outside who are protesting and there's no violence at all all the violence is coming from the police the police are instigating the violence which became a meme 
during that time. But here they can't even they can't claim that in France. They can't claim that the police are instigating the violence. They clearly see like the worst criminal elements in France engaging in this behavior. And while uh, a thing a difference I saw between Floyd and this, is, the riots, is that there were two elements within the Floyd riots that were going on. And they had different motives. If there was a lot of looting and not a lot of directed attacks on like government buildings, it was a black thing. It, you know, and you could have seen this. It's like Minneapolis had it when it was right. It had a mixture. You know, they did target... Uh, you know, a police building. I said they they set a police building on fire in Minneapolis, and there was this mixture of the black element within the Antifa element. While there was also a ton of uh, looting, but in some places where there's just looting, it was all blacks. Like Chicago had a tons of looting throughout the summer. You know, there was just like a random time where they heard that some black guy got shot, and they all went into the ritzy part of downtown and were looting all these stores. And same in L.A. and elsewhere where. There was just a ton of looting, which that was a primarily black thing. Like the blacks were not going after the police buildings and stuff. Antifa were. And so Portland, which was an, most, an almost entirely white affair, is where they were targeting government buildings and other places. And so there was this different element. Here, it's, you know, there are definitely Antifa elements, but I don't think that they're the in the lead in the way that they were in America. I don't like to deny this element because uh, are that there's claiming that all the violence comes from white rioters, which was conservatives were trying to make this meme that's saying like, oh, we support Black Lives Matter and the blacks are just peacefully protesting. But it's all these white Antifa racists who are causing all the violence, which is not true. They just had different directions and where they were targeting. Here, I see that the non-whites who are involved in these riots are as equally concerned with looting as they are with attacking these symbols of the French regime, of the French people, which can go from government buildings, statues, elsewhere. They are equally committed to that. While when it, we saw the George Floyd riots, with some exceptions, the targets of the statues, police buildings, government buildings, it was an Antifa directing them. While like if they went to the nearest Target or CVS, that was uh, that was the blacks involved. So anyway, that's what's going on. I should read the rest of the message because it's really good. It's very important. I think uh, this is information that a lot of Americans aren't getting. So I talk about the poll and he <clears throat> he says that he goes on to say another nice white pill. The GoFundMe for the cops family got almost a million euros in donations, much more than the one for Nahels, which is the dead North African teen. His family. The native Gaul seems to be getting tired of all this. Politically, only the far left really defends the riots at this point. And even then, they're starting to backtrack a little bit. And this is true to get off on point. Is another huge difference is the police unions are released an incredibly keyed statement. Yes, some of the police unions were pretty good during the riots. I mean, the New York police union was, had this whole press conference saying where they can, unfortunately, condemn Chauvin and like he's bad. But they're like, we need support for our law enforcement. We need support for cops. And their police unions even took it up a notch. They're like, this government is doing nothing to help us. We are now the resistance against like chaos and like this very right wing statement that and even some of the. Uh, elements of the army are also making this. That's also another big difference is the military is very hostile to the riots. 
Uh, there's very strong right-wing elements in the French military. It's the same in most European militaries because, you know, there's uh, in Europe there's like a kind of a... They don't really respect their troops as much as America does. So if you join the military, it's like a real way of saying I'm right-wing. Even though there's guys who join the military in America who... Or at least the white guys generally perceived as being right wing, but that's changing over time. Especially, you can see this with polls, and the military leadership endorsed the riots. I mean, Milley endorsed the riots. There was um, the guy who's now the uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who was an Air Force general. He released a statement endorsing Black Lives Matter. They were, and they're like, we're going to be more committed to Black Lives Matter. And even on the back end, the military refused to de-deploy it. And they're like, this is, this once again, this is fascism. We're not going to do this. Well, the military here in France seems to be more willing to be deployed, which their, much, their senior leadership is much more right-wing than ours. And uh, the police unions are on the same, are on the same length as our, as our police unions, but I think they're, uh, <laughs> the the statement released by their police units is really like something written from like a movie. <laughs> it was very strong statement. It's very powerful statement. Um, even though our police unions were generally good, um, they were not this uh, off the off the rails keyed as the police unions. But going back to this um, Katsunin statement, and so he's saying the left wing. But Kron started out throwing the police under the bus, but is now calling for calm by promising the largely immigrant suburbs more taxpayer money. Uh, base Macron. Uh, we'll get into that in a moment on that meme. And it's hilariously blaming video games and social media for the violence. He knows his boomer, boomer audience very well. Oh, he he must be reading National Review articles for why there's a crisis in them. It's all video games and social media dating apps. Uh, several mayors have been physically attacked at this point, even the more pro-immigrant ones, which has almost never happened before. On the right, the Republicans, which is their... Uh, largest center-right party, even though I think... No, they're the second largest party. Uh, National Front, well, now National Rally, which is Le Pen's party, is now, you know, neck and neck with them. But... And then there's Macron's uh, center-left party. I forget the name of it, but it's... Uh, they The parties change names all the damn time in, in France. And his party was like a new creation that was essentially created for the 2017 presidential elections. But that's the largest party. Uh, the Republicans are the largest center-right party. So Republicans are having mixed reactions. Those elected thanks in part to immigrant votes are calling for more money for Dem programs. Others are calling for a state of emergency and making semi-keyed statements. Zemmour is calling this a race war. Le Pen is mostly silent like always. Actually, I've been seeing their statements, but I, as I said, Le Pen has been making better statements. But I, I think this, um, I think Zemmour's statements are much better than what I'm seeing Um but once again, from American perspective, we see Le Pen saying stuff, but those guys in the French right wing may think that she's not saying enough. And you could have seen this when in America at that time, when we were seeing Trump, we were all pissed off that Trump wasn't saying enough and doing enough during the initial stance of the right. So I understand that perspective. It's something that we uh, as not living over there and not knowing French may not understand. It's clear at this point that the state doesn't have this under control and can't do much to stop it under the current paradigm of cops not being able to shoot anyone and being told not to not inflame tensions, at least. A lot of the riders have military-grade weapons. Some have tried to break into prisons, and despite over 2,000 people being arrested and the RAID being deployed, most of them won't face serious consequences. 
Actually, I had to look up what the RAID is. It's an elite French uh, police unit, like the SWAT, but it's for the national police force. A lot of these European countries have national police forces. Uh, we don't. Well, I mean, if you FBI and other things, but uh, not quite in their way. Uh, so that's being deployed out there, and they're having trouble with that, which is more than uh, what was being used in America, where they didn't even want to deploy the military. And he's saying, meanwhile, the state is persecuting nationalists in Angiers for defending their headquarters from Antifa and North African mobs, which is something I didn't even know. I know that there's been video clips of nationalists taking the streets and fighting some of the rioters, which is also a big difference from America, um, which even though in America, there's been right wingers have tried to retcon what happened in the riots of 2020, where, you know, it was such a black pill and defeat. Uh, for them that they've now tried to revise and it's saying that there were tons of examples of guys going up with AR-15s and, you know, d intimidating away the rioters, which the only example they've ever proved was Coeur d'Alene, which Coeur d'Alene, Idaho is a credibly right white area and they probably weren't uh, at fear of rioters, but there was like a small like left wing demonstration there. And there were a bunch of like militia guys with guns and there was that. I mean, there were some examples of like neighborhoods in the suburbs where some people formed like a, like a patrol unit and they were there. But how much of a risk of them having riders and them coming there was m minimal at best. I mean, the only real example besides Coeur d'Alene was Kyle Rittenhouse, where he was one guy was beaten up by an entire mob and thanks to him having a, a, a long rifle, he was able to defend himself. But then he was put on, you know, he's uh, he was arrested and charged with murder, which he thankfully beat those charges. And going on with the uh, Katsun and statements, historically what stopped riots like these were drug traffickers, chaos is bad for business and moss tacit agreement with the state. They can do whatever they want in some regions in exchange. They keep the Browns under control. This is what happened in 2005. This is also why interestingly, some of the worst neighborhoods in Marseille, the Northern districts typically have low petty crime rates. The drug dealers control it completely. This could be seen in the beginning of the riots. Somehow the North of Marseille was spared. This recently started changing though. And it seems that these two institutions have less control over the communities than they used to. Right now, things just seem to be winding down a bit. Supposedly, a fireman did die last night. I guess at some point, there's nothing left to burn and loot. Probable outcome, whites will be more awake. Browns will get, once again, more taxpayer money. Nothing new under the sun, though things could flare up back for any reason soon enough. Well, Kat Soonan has a little bit of a more uh, black pill take, I would say. Or I wouldn't say black pill, but a little bit of saying, I don't think much will happen to this. I do think there is a awakened gall element here that there was not in america there first off there are some things to realize about france france has this real commitment to being a colorblind republic that it doesn't see race at all and it's very different from america because america will sometimes well now we consider colorblind as <laughs> us as white supremacy and this is being taught in schools throughout the country but here we're like, we're not supposed to see race unless non-whites are seeing race to complain about whites and demand more benefits from the government and special treatment from the government. So in America, we have, you can't notice racial differences from a, um, from a race realist angle. Like race realism is not allowed here. But at the same time, this critical race theory is official state ideology. In France, both elements are frowned upon and not encouraged. Even though there's more punishment for race realism than there is for critical race theory, the public generally opposes it. And, you know, 
Macron and his you know center left ministers all attack the wokeism, which here in America, like you know Biden and others, like I lo- we love wokeness, <laughs> like they love wokeness, like everyone in the Democratic Party is super supportive of wokeness, and even never Trumpers like David French and others, like oh we love wokeness. While there, it's like their whole center element and center left element is also opposed to wokeness and tries to you know curtail its popularity in the country. And there's been examples of like where, you know, some popular speaker who's of non-white origin or a person of color, we could say, and they're spreading stuff that you would hear in a high school in America. And like they draw like mass protests and controversy and people try to shut them down from speaking. And so they have this like they try to stay. Well, we're just not going to see race from any perspective, whether it's the woke version of it or the race 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 realist element of it because you know Zemmour has been prosecuted for hate speech over there and so has Le Pen both her both her and her dad and several other people are are constantly uh, persecuted for hate speech and prosecuted by the government but at the same time it's not like the government is supporting the critical race theory stuff and even the Macron government has come down on radical Islam in a way that you know, our government never would. And, you know, they're trying to curtail like these radical imams and they really don't like these uh, head coverings and, and burqas in public. And they try to restrict that. And that's even coming from the left and the right in there. It's only really like the far left that supports this stuff. But this doesn't really work because unlike in America and even a lot of French, some French right wingers that I've met in person who've come over to America will just say like, oh, you know, French is, you know, just about, uh, you know, a feeling, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a mentality or sometimes they'll just say it's about being a Catholic, which even most like French people who are nominally Catholic don't even go to church. I think only like 5% of French Catholics regularly attend church. So it's, uh, so they even not that, but even though this is what they say by practice and stuff, there's, you know, the French identity is strongly tied to ethno, ethnocultural differences. And these immigrants who've been there for a long time have never assimilated into France. There's nothing to, you know, unlike with America where we have, um, I don't want to be too critical of America, but it it is easier to assimilate to America because all you have to do is, you know, watch Marvel movies, listen to rap, enjoy our pro sports and, you know, pursue money. That's really all you have to do. And speak English. I mean, uh, you know, these worries about having a bicultural America have largely dissipated into something worse where most of our new immigrants are assimilating into a magical American culture. And that's what they're adopting uh, instead of keep sticking to their Spanish or their Muslim roots or whatever. They instead adopt uh, the new American identity, which is very different from the waspy ideal. And that's very universalist. And so most of the time when Americans say they're like people, uh, non-whites say they're alienated from America, it's just a bullshit reason to get in college and they write in their essay or to get sympathy points. They're, they fully assimilate into America or at least the new America. They're the, you know, the blacks and the you know North Africans know that they can never be truly French, that the French being French means being a white person. And even though the French may say that's not like, not like true, there's this strong ethnic identity there that, you know, the new immigrants just are never going to assimilate into. And this is what's coming to happen in France. And I think there is a type of white pill here. I don't want to, I'm not an accelerationist, but for French right wingers have been predicting this for years. 
that these new elements are never going to assimilate and they're going to be a violent, unstable element that could topple the country as it exists. And they're going to be a constant threat to the way to the true French identity. And, you know, this going back to Camp of the Saints, uh, Wellebeck, others, they've all been predicting this. Camus, not, not Albert Camus, but the uh, one who came up with uh, Great Replacement. So they've all been talking about this. And you need these elements to happen to showcase that this arrangement is not going to work. That this is the fruits of diversity. This is the fruits of mass immigration. And you, the colorblind republic ideal is not going to work because these people... No matter what you tell them, they're going to see color. They're going to see race on both sides. Like the French who may be speaking about this, so like, oh, anyone can be French. They know at the end of the day that only really like a white Frenchman can be French. You know, French identity is something tied to your heritage. And that's something recognized and maybe not spoken out explicitly, but that's something recognized by both sides. That's certainly recognized by the immigrants who come here and they're like, fuck the French. And a lot of these riots are about, like, fuck the French, like, fuck this country, fuck these people. We are not a part of them. And we want our this country to reflect what we look like, much less than the native population. And this event exposes it to the general public that the colorblind republic ideal of, like, all these people are going to come in and they're eventually going to become French is never going to work. They're always going to be like this. There's always going to be this chance for race riots. There's always going to be this possibility of these explosions. And the only thing that they can do to stop that is to end mass immigration and to ensure France stays French. And that doesn't mean some type of cultural values or uh, secularism or whatever. It's about the people who built the country over a thousand years. And that that's not the new immigrants. And Europe is becoming more right wing. You know, the AFD and... And Germany is winning, is gaining a lot of popularity. They're now getting 20% support in polls. They're winning mayoral elections. They are gaining in popularity. And in Germany, the whole political system is designed to not allow a party like that to get popular and to get seats. And they've, um, and the, you know, the their version, the FBI is putting them under surveillance and saying they're an extremist group. And they have, F, you know, their equivalent of the FBI saying, don't vote for these guys. They're a threat to democracy. <clears throat> and even a majority of Germans say that they're a threat to democracy. Even 10% of, of AFD voters think they're a threat to democracy, yet they're still voting for them or their idea of, of democracy. But, you know, the right is gaining in power. You know, National Front or National Rally is now the third largest party in their parliament. And the Freedom Party, which everyone thought had been killed off in Austria over some scandals a few years ago, is now a very powerful party and is getting popularity. Same with Sweden and Sweden Democrats. You know, you have the right wing nationalist government in Italy, which with Bologna, which there are problems there with them, but they're gaining in support. It's really just like the UK where you're not seeing that. Uh, right-wing support, but that's because the UK may be more similar to America. Or the rest of the Anglosphere is like worse than America, and that's some of what you're seeing. But in Spain, like the right-wing party is also gaining in power and influence there. So you're seeing this all throughout Europe at the same time that the immigrant riots and their crime are showing that they're never going to assimilate, and these idiotic colorblind notions of everyone you know coming together and you know being French, being Spanish, being German is just uh, is just a set of values is just not working out. And so all these dire predictions and threats warned about by all these right-wing thinkers are coming true in Europe.
And this is different in America. I don't want to be, once again, this is not a black pill element in America, but I just want to bring this up when comparing the situation in Europe to the situation in America and what happened in 2020 versus what's happening in France right now. I think something positive can come out of this and that it wakes up people. Uh, the 2020 riots uh, did the opposite of waking up Americans. It was, um, you know, there's been a lot of things to be blackpilled over in recent years, but the riots were just a mega blackpill. And everyone always accused me of being blackpilled and blah, blah, blah. But I really have to say is like, one, there was not a backlash towards them. You know, it didn't really figure into the 2020 elections. <clears throat> and if there was any backlash, it was to the media portrayed it as like police violence and Trump being evil and bad and hurting peaceful protesters. And both sides were able to wreck, uh, retcon what the what the riots were about. The left thinks that they were all peaceful. You know, the 93 percent of protests were peaceful. You know, that bullshit study that they love to talk about back then and even afterwards. They all think they were peaceful. The right likes to think that, you know, these based rural light militias took down the rioters and that there was no riots at all. Uh, and there were several times they were standing up. And like I said, the only examples they have, real examples besides uh, my cousin heard in like, you know, rural Alabama, there was going to be a BLM riot. And, and then the militias took them out and disappeared them. And it's like, well, there's... I'm sure this is true. Your your cousin is exactly right. That's pretty much the only examples is that just like anecdotes backed up with no evidence. The only examples they have is Coeur d'Alene, which there was no real riot threat. There was just some protesters, very white area, um, you know, largely conservative area, you know, wasn't under threat. And then Kenosha, where Rittenhouse got, you know, beaten up and he had to defend himself against the rioters. That was it, you know, and other examples, you know, and people, you know, they were able to take control of all the cities and all the places that mattered and run their own checkpoints. as what happened in Houston or in Austin with uh, Daniel Perry, not to be confused with Daniel Penny, where this guy, uh, you know, they were running a checkpoint and the guy, a guy was threatening him with a rifle and Perry, who was a army sergeant, took him out and he got charged and convicted with murder. So there was nothing and there was total support for it. You know, unlike in France, there's not like um, a Black Lives Matter type thing where the majority of the population supports. Uh, Two thirds of the population supported Black Lives Matter at the height of the riots. Uh, so the riots, there was a front lash, you know, instead of a backlash where, you know, people are like, ah, we hate this. We hate the riots, which is what happened in the 60s. You know, support for the civil rights movement declined with rising violence, like the riots turn people off to the civil rights movement and their demands complete opposite with the riots the 2020 riots it made everyone support their demands and everyone come out and support for them you know changing their instagram to black squares and stuff and i even saw this on an anecdotal perspective is like <clears throat> you know i went to facebook expecting to find you know and i have largely or i had i no longer have facebook i have largely conservative you know people I knew, you know, it's people back in Tennessee, you know, it's not like libtards. And I go in there and the, the responses are just horrible. You know, even when people condemn the violence, they had to be like, I support peaceful protests. I condemn police brutality. I think it's so awful what happened to blacks, but please don't destroy businesses, please. 
please stay peaceful. And that's pretty much the only type of like condemnation I would see. Most other people were writing these essays about how they stand with Black Lives Matter and putting Black Lives Matter shit all over their profile and stuff. And so like the whole American public, you know, believed in this stuff at the height of the violence. And it didn't factor into the election. You know, all these Trump supporters were saying, oh, well, there's going to be a backlash to the election. And it really didn't figure that much into the election uh, at all. Uh, I mean, Trump's response, I mean, Trump was like handcuffed in what he could do. I mean, the military didn't want to respond. He had to find like prison guards and others. That's when he sent a national response to Portland because the Portland police were not doing anything because you know, they were having a French situation like there. Antifa was going and harassing the mayor at his residence like at three o'clock in the morning, you know, banging drums and shining a light into his apartment building, all this stuff. And Portland police were standing down. So they had to send like federal law enforcement there and they had to find like border patrol and prison guards to go and, and protect the federal courthouse. And everyone condemned it. It was very unpopular because they're like, oh, the police are instigating the violence. And they're totally ignoring. And the media was told was completely, it wasn't just the far left. It was like the entire center left was on the side of the rioters. Like they portrayed those Portland rioters, those ones laying siege to the courthouse as heroes, which is funny because just a few months later, when people entered the Capitol without uh, permission, you know, they were turned into terrorists. But um, the people throwing Molotov cocktails at the federal courthouse were heroes. And most, and the unfortunate factor is that most of the American public bought this shit. And there was no, you know, and some of this is because the idea of black worship of Afro-Lotry is so embedded within the American public that, you know, they'll just believe this stuff anyway. They believe that blacks are, the only reason the high crime rates happen is be, and they're largely done by blacks disproportionately so, is because of racism in the criminal justice system police are racist judges are racist the whole system is racist that's the only reason why and most of these people are innocent victims that were picked up and they didn't really do anything wrong and among americans there's this idea especially among you know white you know anglo you know anglo stock the are just the normal white americans you know there's no feeling of ethnic identity among them you know sometimes they'll say like well i'm an italian I'm Polish, I'm Irish, but there's no real solid identity there for most people, unless they come from a recent immigrant community, like, uh, you know, maybe they did live in an Italian neighborhood, or some of these Slavic, uh, you know, like the Ukrainians and Russians who live in a Ukrainian-Russian neighborhood, you know, they have a strong ethnic identity, but that's not the case for most uh, white Americans, you know, there's no strong ethnic identity there, they truly believe the uh, assimilated and everyone can be an American nation of immigrant stuff. They generally believe that even if they're far right, you know, there's always this example I bring up of this congressman, Troy Nels, who's one of the most right wing congressmen there is. And they're talking to him about immigration. And he's like talking about how much he loves his Pakistani doctor. And he's like, we love immigrants here in Texas. And this is like one of the most right wing congressmen there is. And he's saying that stuff. And National rally members would not be saying that stuff in France, and AFD members would not be saying that stuff in Germany. Even very liberal Europeans have a sense that there is something unique about Germans or French that not everybody can be along to, belong to. There is this inherent, you know, that identity is based on ethnocultural differences. While here in America, it is idiot, it's pure ideology, and as long as you enjoy the NFL and Marvel movies and rap music, 
you're just as American as anyone else. And, you know, some people, you know, don't believe in that. Uh, but the majority of Americans believe in that. And going back to the point of the 2020 election, it did not factor at all. Like, you might as well just not happen. <clears throat> it, <laughs> it had no real effect on the election. I do think it inspired the Stop the Steal protest because there was so much anger over the fact that Black Lives Matter was able to destroy cities with impunity that all these people are like, well, and some of that got mixed into with the election and how it went. And people just felt like this country was being rigged against them and, and, and not in their favor. And so a lot of people were outraged and that's what inspired a lot of those protests. Um, but the election itself, no. There was a delayed backlash against critical race theory and this anti-white racism in schools. But that's all that a lot of that energy has been misdirected or I don't know if misdirect is the right word, but directed towards drag queens and transgender stuff entirely. Not saying, as I always say, like, not that that stuff isn't bad as well, but it's taken away all the energy and focus on the racial and identity stuff and just being solely focused on that. Um, so one thing is, like, I hope we don't have, a like, a Floyd-like uh, summer ever again because... For accelerationists here, it's accelerating us into cringe, into like it really exposes the weaknesses in America and American identity and how Americans view these things when we have those events. Because everyone's just going to rally behind, you know, the new sob story. Everyone's going to believe the media. Most people are going to believe the media lie. There's not going to be real opposition on the ground. And stuff, and even if you had like nationalist groups challenging them, like everyone thinks these nationalist groups, uh, even though a lot of them are idiots here in America, everyone thinks they're feds and should be, and they would probably be supporting the rioters attacking them uh, than they would uh, the guys challenging them. So there's just all these things, and it does just the. So that's why I'm very optimistic about what the how France will change in the fact of this is it will undermine Macron as he as him being this base guy. There's still a number of right wingers who are like, oh, he's so awesome. He's base because uh, he's Jupiter and he's uh, wanting a united Europe and maybe he says some nice things about Russia and China. And then in reality, he can't control the situation and it undermines his authority. And I think this will hurt him and his party in future elections. And this could pave the path for really what would be the biggest victory in Europe is for a nationalist to become pres the next president of France. And that would be such a massive victory that would be bigger than... I would definitely be bigger than Brexit. And there would be very little possibility of that turning into stupidity or just a failure complete failure like brexit and i think it would rival trump's victory in 2016 but may even be bigger because that would signal that would make a huge signal you you just got to hope that that nationalist is better than maloney in italy but stuff like this can lead to that and you really want that type of development where france where nationalists are coming into power and to the countries that matter in europe Italy is one of the countries that matter, but unfortunately, Maloney isn't quite the leader you want. You see the Eastern European countries, but they have their own little narrow concerns, and they're not in the driver's seat in Europe. Once you have the country, if you had France or Germany have elect a nationalist leader, a nationalist government, that would be a massive victory and a massive step in the right direction. And you need these events like this to prove right-wingers right about what's happening in their countries and the dim, the grim future of their countries in order to achieve the results you have. But it'd be different here in America because of the, 
um, a lot of the delusions and fantasies we have as Americans and the lack of an ethnic identity or racial awareness among whites here and also just the you know, ever-present Afro-lotry within our country and our society, even found among right-wingers. And you have to change those attitudes for these for these types of events to move people in that direction that you want. And so over time, uh, I hope we don't have a 2020 revolution, not just because it was bad, you know, it's like the damage, the massive damage, but it just, it had the opposite effect of you want. If you compare the 60s riots, if you even compare the riots of the, uh, mid 2010s where that really helped Trump get elected and that really did wake up a lot of people to the racial problems in America the identity problems in America the the 2020 riots were not that it really blue pilled more Americans than red pilled them um, if, from what we perceived so uh, that's my thoughts on the on the revolutions on the riots going on in between them I have a very I think it, it's really awful and terrible what's happening in France It's really the most important news story happening in the world today especially to our interests but I do think that there is an element of that this will wake up the Gaul the the Frenchman to what's happening to his country and make them want to support people who will actually try to solve the problem rather than bullshit about the problem like Macron and uh, I don't see it as the same thing happening with America, with the George Floyd revolution, which is one of the greatest black pills to have in our country, which not it's not saying like everything is over in America, but I think people need to be honest about what happened there and the consequences for that and to be honest about it rather than trying to imagine that there were all these rural militias that came and stopped the riots dead in their tracks. But for some reason, even though the media is obsessed with right-wingers being dangerous terrorists, they completely ignored that story, which I don't think it does us any favors to lie and delude ourselves into those uh, fantasies. So that's it. We spent a lot of time on that. So I've got to go to the affirmative action ruling. Before we begin, I should note that this is how different America is from Europe. A lot of Europeans come over here and a lot of foreigners come over here and can't believe that we have this affirmative action example. It's more maybe the East Asians and others who just like can't understand that. They're like, you hire based on race and y'all just hire less qualified people simply be to satisfy a quota. And that's like, yes, that's how we operate our universities. It's how we operate our businesses. That's how we operate in America. And they just like can't believe this. Like affirmative action would be an idea that would be very unpopular in France. But here it rules the land. But now the Supreme Court has chipped at it a little bit. And in a ruling <clears throat> last week, they overturned officially including race as a factor in college applications. Now it did offer a loophole. It said that like the lived experience of race can be used in essays, which it'll probably be used by colleges to figure out a way around it. Now I would say this is a victory. Because, you know, it gives the opportunity for us to advance the agenda that we want and to chip away at these racial quota system and the affirmative action system. And I think when it comes to red state universities, you know, red public universities in red states, it is going to be massively implemented. Like affirmative action is going to be effectively dead in those states because... You know, the, the, if the universe, if the state government finds out their universities are getting around it, they can come down and come down on them hard. So places like Tennessee, Arkansas, Alabama, Kansas, Nebraska, you know, affirmative action is just not going to be there anymore. And these schools are going to be pretty much overwhelmingly white. 
and then so that's a good thing but at the elite universities at the critical elite universities the ivy lakes stanford you know those schools are in public universities in blue states make the best public universities in blue states they're going to figure out loopholes around this and they've already done this a little bit with california but they've had trouble getting enough blacks and hispanics into the elite university elite state universities in california but while that's the case whites are disappearing from their elite universities it's uh you know this is a figure from 2021 and i saw it was like even lower but it's all whites only make up 20 percent of the california university of california education system and at the best universities it's already under 20 percent and whites are not under 20% of the population in California. They're still like 36% of the population, 36, 37%. Yet they're under 20% at their best schools of the population. So, but Asians are like 40% of the students at most of these universities. And whites are barely at their best universities and whites are barely there. And they complain that like, oh, we're not accurately reflecting the demographics of how many Hispanics and, and blacks we have. But, um, you know, it's happening that it's like 20%. And so that's like, so they'll figure out a way at these best universities to ensure fewer whites are going. Because while affirmative action is happening, you know, the official rules allow for truly a merit-based approach to education to occur, which would benefit whites. We're living in a very different climate from what could have been the ruling 20 years ago. When 20 years ago they ruled on affirmative action, if that had happened then, it'd been a much better climate for this to occur. We are not living, then we were not living in this incredibly anti-white environment and this, and Afrolatry was still there, but not as like ever present. So what's going to happen to these elite universities? They'll figure out ways to eliminate the standards, whether they'll no longer account for SAT or ACT and their emissions. It'll all be about the written essay and the written essay will just be like, ensure you talk about your race. And so somebody who's like, I'm white, uh, rejected. And then somebody's like, I'm black, and this informs everything. It's like, oh, accept it. And that's probably what we're going to see at a lot of the elite universities. Of course, there's going to be lawsuits over this. Of course, there's going to be litigation over this. But we're operating in an environment that is hostile to whites, that is, you know, worships diversity and demands more diversity in all aspects of life. And so it it's not going to have quite the effect it would have had if this had been implemented 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. So colleges are already trying to remove the standards, you know, the SAT standards and everything else along with that as a result of the George Floyd revolution in order to increase diversity and increase the proportion of their black and Hispanic students long, long before this ruling. And now this is just going to accelerate that trend. So they're going to eliminate the standards just to have more of those minorities. And It'll probably it'll benefit Asians because what I think is going to happen is that a lot of these universities are just going to give their admissions, you know, what would have otherwise gone to white students, they'll just give them them to Asians. So most of these Ivy League universities are about 20% Asian. They'll probably go up to 30 or 35% Asian. And most of those spots are going to be taken are going to be taken from white students. Now, litigation could do wonders for this. I mean, there could be that there's a fight in the lower courts and eventually the Supreme Court has to rule and they give a more definitive, like, you cannot consider race at all and gives them fewer loopholes. And then we have this development. <clears throat> and that's, like, very good. I think the Supreme Court is ruling and is making a lot of rulings that 
if they had happened 20 years ago, they would have really done wonders for our country. The problem is, is that at a cultural level, at a social level, America has experienced a lot of negative changes. And a lot of this emanates from the from the George Floyd revolution and how we approach racial matters. And and it's the same even with a lot of a lot of the, you know, state governments that are you know trying to ban DEI training and stuff. But it is in every business now. Like if you work for a company that, you know, has multiple locations or anything or just like is a sizable company that's more than just like a mom and pop store or an independent proprietor, you're going to have to go through DEI training. You're going to have to go through that. And, you know, there's a lot of back and forth over this, but this is an effect of the George Floyd revolution is now now every employee has to learn about how they're bad because they're white and how they have white privilege and to avoid microaggressions. And it goes even to public schools and stuff where there's been some positive development to eliminate that stuff. But at the same time, you know, it's still that stuff is still seeping in under an, another name. And universities have this the mo the worst example of this mentality of this anti-whiteness and this desire, this cold of diversity that has taken over. And it's really most present in universities. And now we're telling them like, oh, hey, you can't see race. You've got to base on merit. You gotta pick students on merit, which is gonna overwhelmingly favor white and Asian students. And I don't think they mind Asian students that much that's coming in because Conservatives use Asians as a proxy for this because they know they can't or they feel uncomfortable about highlighting how this harms whites. And generally, whenever you see mainstream conservatives talk about affirmative action, they just talk about how it hurts Asians. They don't talk about how it hurts whites. They just like and one of the lawsuits, I think it was the Harvard lawsuit, didn't even mention how this discriminates against whites. It's just how it discriminates against Asians. The UNC lawsuit also included whites in, in, in that, I believe. But the Harvard one that was a part of this ruling is a Harvard. It was a lawsuit against Harvard and a lawsuit against UNC, and they're both included in this. Uh, the Harvard one was just about Asians and how they discriminate against Asians. And there's even been these leftists who have made, I think, uh, you know, points that have some accuracy, saying that conservatives are using Asians as a shield to push for an agenda to this. Now, they say they're using this agenda to only help out whites, but really, in fact, it's not helping out whites that much. It's going to help out Asians far more than it's going to help out whites. And they even did this with uh, uh, school standards in Virginia and elsewhere, where there were, you know, there was very highly competitive high schools to get into, and they were discriminating against Asians. There was one high school, I think it was uh, Thomas Jefferson High School in um, Virginia, very competitive high school to get into, and all the conservatives were complaining about how, you know, under their new diversity standards, there were more white students attending, and they're like, this is racist, and white privilege, and they're hurting Asians, and that's just what we have to deal with um, when this comes out. So we're operating in a weird country right now, and a weird society where it demands affirmative action, but the court says that it's illegal. Or at least the institutions that matter. I mean, the public opinion against affirmative action, it's always been a majority against it. And even in California, they had the option of scrapping their ban on affirmative action in universities. And even though it's a very liberal state and whites are no longer a majority there, uh, the population still voted to keep the ban on affirmative action. So it's very, you know, the people are on the, have the right opinion, but the institutions are even more insistent and more, 
desiring this this effect and even with the public the public who can convince them that like you need this to encourage diversity they still think that diversity is like a highest good and is a great thing that you need to succeed in modern life so it's hard so it's going to be hard with us but i you know this will be an it's still a victory because it opens up the opportunities to do some positive things. It just needs to be worked out in the courts and it'll be worked out on the state level. So you could, I think that in the immediate term, it's going to have a massive benefit for whites in red states where now, you know, if they got rejected from say Texas or Florida, you know, these Georgia, you know, these very competitive, really good public state universities, and they got rejected simply because they needed to add more diversity. Now those students students have an opportunity to go to those universities and not be rejected because of the color of their skin. But when it comes to the very elite universities or elite private universities that aren't as much under control of these red state legislatures, there's going to be this battle that's going to take place in the courts and they're going to try to find loopholes around it. I think it's be harder for those red state public universities to find loopholes around it. Uh, especially when the state legislature is monitoring it and other means. But, um, and the, you know, the, the deans there have to please the state legislature too. Uh, so it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting to see. It'll be worked out. I still think it's a victory, but you have to keep in mind the mentality that rules our elites at this moment. And they, it's guided by anti-white racism and it's guided by this desire for more diversity and so these elite universities are going to try to achieve that level of diversity and ensure they have fewer white students by any means necessary. And that's why it's up to where lawfare is so important. And that's why we need to hope that eventually a ruling comes out that firmly kills affirmative action and allows for the opportunity to start challenging affirmative action hiring practices, which is getting even worse because there's so many of these companies that now state we won't hire whites or we're trying to achieve this barometer of diversity. Like we want all our managers to be a third of our management to be non-white and all these standards. And I hopefully this creates the precedent to start targeting that stuff, which would be a huge victory if, you know, those type of quotas that a lot of these companies are pursuing are then found to be unconstitutional and uh, have to be eliminated. So, that's both a win and a loss at the time. Uh, there are some other things to go on, but we've had such a long... I spent so much time in the French riots. I mean, the most funny thing is Katanji Brown Jackson's opinion, which everyone, all these liberals are soy jacking over. There is a point where she's saying, uh, and you know, this is kind of the colorblindness versus race essentialism. I guess that's a one way of describing it. And the colorblind position was articulated by Clarence Thomas and the left-wing race essentialist mentality was expressed by Kentanji Brown Jackson. In her dissent, she said, uh, I'll read it because it, it is like stupid. People are like, this is so brilliant, but it is like stupid. Even though I, if it was said from a right-wing perspective, I would agree with it, but it's said from a left-wing perspective. So she says, with let them eat cake obliviousness. Oh, they love being sounding smart. Today, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat. But deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in, in life. And so she talks about other things. And then she goes, no one benefits from ignorance. Although formal race linked legal barriers are gone, race still matters to the lived experience of all Americans in innumerable ways. And today's ruling makes things worse, not better. And the point of that, you know, we can't ignore race and race 
matter does matter to the lived experiences of all Americans, but minus whites who just oh, I, they, you know, they have the luxury of feeling of not understanding race. I guess you could say it's a luxury. It's both a luxury and a and um, a shortcoming. You could say I view it as more of a shortcoming. But you know, they can just oh, why well, care about race? I'm just living my life, and that's what a lot of white Americans are. But you know, you can't ignore race. But the thing is, is what she's meaning is that we need to account for race to have more racial wealth redistribution and give, have racial quotas and have all these bad things that hurt the majority of Americans at the benefit of minority Americans. So we are not a fan of that. But with Clarence Thomas, he's like, these race essentialist ideas are not there. We should just focus on merit and all these things. And I think you would agree with that instinctually because the outcomes are the policies that Thomas's argument is making would benefit us, even though what he's saying on a philosophical level is probably more at odds with an identitarian worldview than the worldview of Ketanji Brown Jackson. But that worldview of Ketanji Brown Jackson is about ensuring that fewer of us go to universities, that there were more discriminated against in, in emissions and in, in the workplace and where our kids are being taught to hate themselves and that they need to learn about white privilege. And that's what she means about her type of identitarianism versus Clarence Thomas's colorblindness, which would lead to lots of great benefits and ensure that we're not discriminated against in the workplace, that we're not discriminated against in universities, and that a colorblind America would actually benefit whites. But at the same time, as we're seeing in France, you know, a colorblind ideal doesn't always work because obviously reality is going to look in but for america it's better than the alternative of Gandhi browns jackson's identitarianism that where you know it, it essentially boils down to anti-white racism so that's just something to consider that's something to probably a topic i need to broaden about and maybe write an article about than this but well it's always a time with these podcasts i have one topic that i dedicate all my energy and all my willpower to and then the other other topics i have a ton of stuff to talk about but i use up all that time on that one topic and i made that great so i had to keep this briefer about the affirmative action thing but we're going to talk about this and write about this a lot more in the future so this issue is not going away but these are just my initial thoughts on what could happen there and so the third topic before we get into the common elite questions is the weird DeSantis um, <laughs> gay a, a pride ad that he released on Twitter, the DeSantis War Room released on Twitter last week. Now, the DeSantis campaign, I've always said it's an extremely online campaign, and this video really captures it. Uh, they've been trying to uh, utilize meme culture, right-wing meme culture for their benefit, and particularly a lot of these online right-wing stuff. They've been trying to imitate this, you know, for lack of a better term, these Panther Den style videos. Some people may not remember Panther Den, but Panther Den was making very popular meme videos in 2019, 2020. Uh, they were very much in the style, and people really liked them. Uh, some of them had some uh, questionable optics in them, but we still see a lot of these videos today. There's still a lot of these... Uh, Guys who do it, but generally there's uh, there's kind of an absurdist element to that because it'll be, you know, like Michael Scott from The Office with like dyed blonde hair and lightning blue eyes with like a sun and red <laughs> coming out. And you're like, what the hell is this? But there's like this absurdist element to it that makes it funny uh, to a lot of these videos. 
And here they're trying to incorporate that for a political campaign, which it doesn't really work <clears throat> as a normal political campaign. And it's a direct imitation of these videos with eliminating a lot of the absurdist element or a lot of the over-the-top element and trying to direct it into a standard political ad, which it's very weird for a political ad. Now, they've been trying to do this before, but it's very weird to outsiders because they're consciously trying to imitate those right-wing meme smiths. And so there's this one video where Pedro Gonzalez, uh, who who actually we have to, I don't want to bring, actually, we're going to have a little bit of sidetrack. I did talk about a lot of this on my IQ supplement last week, but I do have to talk a little bit about this, especially with this video coming out, is that Pedro, in his long essay on um, why he was thinking uh, dangerous thoughts or thinking troublesome thoughts, he blamed all his racism and anti-Semitism on Trump and these Trump culture, and then he left the darkness. He left, he returned to light, uh, through uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, there's a lot of uh, odd things about his response, but uh, I'll leave those unsaid. I think most listeners will understand that. But when it comes to his uh, argument for why he was saying these things, which some of them weren't that bad, some of them were probably things you don't want to speak out in public, but you know, it's whatever. And sometimes it appeared that he was trying too hard to please the group chat that he was saying these things in and that's why he said them but otherwise like you know it's probably indicating he generally believed this stuff but he would just say like oh it's all due to trump that i believe this stuff is all because of racism and this evil hateful online subculture that i left well he's saying this he's at the same time this campaign is trying to rip off that subculture and use them for their ads which is very weird because they don't want that support that are they sort of want that subculture support while they're at the same time condemning it. And there's weird things about these videos. I mean, they've been doing this for time. I mean, as I said, there's a Pedro time where like the Zoomer edits, Zoomer DeSantis edits are getting really good when they're made by some guy working at the Never Back Down Super PAC. It's not, they're not genuine Zoomer edits. The first time they did this, it was really lame. It really did not get the aesthetics at all. The second time there was a video of like DeSantis and Casey... And they have the drive music playing, which once again doesn't understand what the subculture would use the drive music for. It was not to showcase this like standard suburban marriage, which I've kind of understood this when like mainstream right wingers try to take stuff from the dissident right. They don't really quite understand this. I understood. I highlighted this one example in the IQ supplement. Well, when Claremont once did a podcast on Broad's Age Pervert, a lot of people in the audience aren't going to like him, but whatever your thoughts on Broad's Age Pervert, just listen to how they don't understand Broad's Age Pervert. And they say the meaning of BAP is that it's about uh, having your kids run around the neighborhood unsupervised. Um, that is not the meaning of BAP. That's not the meaning of dissident right at all, but they incorporate this stuff to just like standard mainstream right concerns. So they take the drive music, which is supposed to be, when those videos are done, they're trying to, you know, indicate a type of uh, dark individualism in our modern world. Like you're listening to that music and you're driving along and seeing the filth and degeneracy around you. And you're, you know, you're keeping cool, you're keeping your stoicism, which is what a meaning of a lot of those videos are. Here, it's just like highlighting a standard, like, middle-class marriage. And that's not, like, the point of the music. That's not the point of those videos. And now it gets even worse with this latest video, where they did a try try to do a direct imitation of this stuff. 
with like the menacing electronic music and these like like these flash shots and like everything cutting across and like there's all these figures being occluded in it and it's about attacking trump for supporting pride month and in this video it highlights trump like doing uh I guess LGBT events are, and then Lady MAGA. I think Caitlyn Jenner is in there, and then they say like have a video of like Trump, like I don't care what bathroom Caitlyn Jenner uses, and then it showcases like DeSantis, like no, and then there's like Tyler the Creator that shows up, it's like ha, and then uh, Achilles from Troy is in there, and then Patrick Bateman is in there, and it's like the menacing electronic music, and the impression is that. Trump is pro-gay and DeSantis is anti-gay. And uh, that's the one message to get. Now, this is at odds with what DeSantis is actually for. DeSantis, if you ever asked him, he'd be like, I am not anti-gay, I'm anti-groomer. And also the, the ad hits Trump for you know honoring the people killed at Pulse nightclub when just last month, DeSantis ordered all flags in the state to be flown in half mass to honor Pulse nightclub just last month. I mean, maybe there was a sudden change in the last few weeks, but I doubt it. And he did this. And you're like, that's a, that's a little bit strange, especially with this ad where he's supposedly uh, wanting to ban homosexuality in this. And at the same time, DeSantis has like gay surrogates, you know, like Dave Rubin. Dave Rubin is one of the biggest backers of DeSantis. And he's obviously gay. He's in a gay. He's in a mar gay marriage, and he's got surrogate kids that he just highlighted. And DeSantis bought his surrogate kids onesies. You know, if this guy is supposedly anti-gay, then what would be that that way? And there's been other news articles saying this. It was like, you know, there's a news. Uh, I think it was the New York Times is showing that you know DeSantis said like you know just a few years ago like we need to move on from the LGBT issues and focus on other matters. And he wasn't like even that hard on this issue, but he's now getting into this issue partially because of conservative media. This is their main focus. And he feels he can outflank Trump. But the only way he can outflank Trump is by returning to a 1990s position of like homosexuality should be, which was like common among conservatives. And there are still states where homosexuality was officially illegal uh, in the 20th century, in the late 20th century where it should actually be banned and we're, we're going to overturn gay marriage, which is not DeSantis' position at all. Like DeSantis opposed that gay marriage legalization bill on the national level, not because he opposed gay marriage, that he said it should be illegal, just because he felt that it was a threat to religious freedom. There was no argument he made saying that actually gay marriage should be illegal. That's not what he said. And he supports Dave Rubin's marriage and his uh, strange family that's uh so on a personal level he's not even doing that and on a political level he's not doing that and his whole focus is just on groomers it's not on uh gays in general that's like so this ad goes far beyond what's DeSantis' status position now it'd be normal if this was just done by a fan account like if there's just like a random meme lord or something who made this video and that's understandable but this is put out by the official campaign and like are endorsed and the people are like well it's made by this guy and this guy's not a part of the official campaign but DeSantis war room shared it and you know this would have been like trump campaign sharing the gas chamber memes from 2016 which they were not doing 
um, but that's like, uh, you know, you're about to see like DeSantis have like their own gas chamber memes, but instead of a Nazi uniform, it'll be like a World War II uniform because they're trying to eliminate the racist and the really offensive stuff by but copying the, the template and the and the spirit of it. But it's like a forced inauthentic spirit to it. And so this like video comes out. And so it's it's not even stating DeSantis's position. Largely, you know, for the most part, outside of some few rhetorical things that Trump has said uh, in the, you know, LGBT or favor or, you know, thinking the Disney boycott, the focus on Disney is not that important. You know, their position on gay issues is largely the same, you know, virtually the same. You know, they both oppose like teaching the stuff in schools. They both oppose. Uh, they both have support for, you know, ensuring the surgeries aren't happening to kids. You know, it's largely the same. So it's the only way that he can outmaneuver Trump is by saying that he's the truly anti-gay politician, which he's not saying at all. And even their supporters will, were coming in and doing um, damage control after this, saying like, oh, well, DeSantis is not anti-gay. He's just anti-groomer. And so the video didn't even reflect his own views. And the second problem with this video is that the vast majority of GOP voters aren't going to get it. And that's the audience for this. It's not the, the trying to unite the both online sphere, right sphere, and the normie offline right sphere. And both sides didn't like this video. Like the normie sphere, like the boomers are like, what the hell is this? Like, why is Bill, Brad Pitt in this? Like, what? what's that? What's that? <laughs> What's that guy who played Batman doing it in a suit? I don't understand this. Like, what? what's this weird music? Well, I don't get this. They're going to be very confused by it. And they're like, I don't get this at all. And then the online right knows it's lame and authentic, that it's done by super PAC consultants and not by done by ordinary people or ordinary meme lords. So they're not going to like that either. And the left just finds it very weird. And then they're saying, like, this is an explicitly anti-gay ad, which... They're saying that it's taking a position that DeSantis himself doesn't even take, which so it's like, what's the positive effect of this? Well, the positive effect is, is that the online rapid response team that thinks everything DeSantis does is amazing from his failed uh, Twitter space announcement to, you know, his gaffes and his like, you know, sweating through his shirt. And they just think that everything he does is awesome. You know, they thought this is amazing. And this really connects to the Zoomers, which it didn't at all. It's just connecting with these gen x surrogates he has who are going through a midlife crisis and they think this makes them young and relevant and so it's a very strange ad but it really illustrates the problem with his extremely with uh, desantis's extremely online campaign it's going to make him take stances that are appealing to a narrow demographic or trying to win over that demographic of people online that most people are just that's not their stance on these issues or they just simply don't care about this stuff. You could have even seen this in his Twitter space where he's just talking in these really in the weeds wonkery about ESG and stuff, which the average person's like, what? And like it was like a really boring think tank, poli- um, think tank uh, podcast that was happening. And so that's not what people are really into. Second off, it's not reaching the people he needs to actually win over to win a GOP primary, and it's not that narrow demographic of online right people. It's about winning over the boomers and the Gen Xers who are offline. They're touching grass, and they have their own concerns, 
And DeSantis has a lot of trouble winning them over because you have to win over them through your personality. Not You can't just depend on conservative media to create this fantasy image of yourself, which is what DeSantis is hoping is going to win. But the real person is this dorky guy who's like, Hi, I'm Ron DeSantis. I don't like ESG. And that's what he talks about. He's not going to win over that audience. If you showed this video to any of those people, they would just go, what the fuck? I don't understand this at all. This is some strange ass shit. Because, and they're not the target audience for this. They're easy. You know, DeSantis is trying to fall into the Blake Masters campaign path, which I really like Blake Masters, but Blake Masters was a little bit too concerned with what people online said him. And even like the places he was doing interviews and stuff, you know, it was like Alex Kushida and other places, which is probably fine for like other people to go for. But it's probably if you're like a Senate candidate, may not be the best place for it. And he's talking about how he liked uh, Ted Gazinski and stuff, which is not an appealing thing to say in a Republican primary, but it is a thing to win over the online right. DeSantis isn't even going that far with st stressing interesting ideas. He's just stealing our stuff and just hoping that by stealing his stuff and making a lamer version of it, that's going to win us over, which it's not. And it's also confusing the actual people he needs to win over. But he's having troubles like outflanking Trump. And he's hoping the uh, the LGBT issue is where it's at. But there is a very um, thin line of where conservatives are. Conservatives are in a weird place on this issue. Because they're very hostile towards trans. And there is some development where they are no longer seeing gay relationships as morally acceptable. But at the same time, they they do see gays as different from trans. I mean, yes, I know it's weird, but that's how they think. And going full into the anti-gay stuff is one going to be very bad for a general election, I, I, regardless of what, you, what your opinion of this is. And it might not even work for, for a Republican primary. And it's not even where DeSantis himself wants to go, but he feels that he just has to outflank Trump on the right. But it doesn't matter how much he outflanks Trump on the right. Is like those people who are most right wing have an emotional attachment to Trump, regardless of his actual politics. They just see him as their leader and their avatar. And he's even having this issue with immigration. While the conservative media was talking about how DeSantis' immigration plan is the toughest imaginable, it's virtually the same as Trump's. Virtually the same as Trump as what he actually Trump's presidential camp uh, when he was president, his policies. It's like we're going to eliminate catch and release. Trump did that. We're going to impose Remain in Mexico. Trump created that. Um, we're going to defund sanctuary cities. Trump's DOJ tried to do that, and it got overturned, and it got blocked by the courts, which you can say, oh, well, DeSantis will arrest the judge. No, he won't. He's going to have the same issues. Anything he suggests, it's you know more these things that he's going to have the same troubles of doing with Trump. You know, the wall. Wall was opposed by a lot of Republicans, a lot of Democrats, and Trump had to declare a national state emergency to get funds from the Defense Department to build a wall. He could have done it earlier, but he did it. And a lot of the things he's pointing out, DeSantis points out with the problems of the wall is due to Biden no longer building the wall. You know, if he had another term, the bill, the wall could have been built. So there's really no difference. And, no, and anyway, Trump has an advantage on, on immigration. And also, neither Trump or DeSantis is mentioning legal immigration so far. So that's one way that DeSantis could outmaneuver Trump. But he knows that it will piss off some of his donors and the important Cuban lobby that he needs a base of support in Florida. So he does not going to call for legal immigration. He could down the line, but so far he hasn't. 
But Trump stands out for two. He makes this clear on two issues. He says he's going to issue an executive order to eliminate birthright citizenship, which is pretty much the only way we're ever going to have a, a chance at eliminating birthright citizenship. While DeSantis is a little bit more uh, mealy mouthed about it and says we're just going to do something through Congress, which Congress is never going to eliminate birthright citizenship. The only way you can do this is doing an executive order and sending it to the courts, and maybe the courts find that, you know, affirmative, or not affirmative action, but birthright citizenship is not actually spelled out in the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment says something different, and it does not extend to the children of illegal immigrants. That's the only way to do that. And Trump calls for mass deportation, which DeSantis doesn't call for at all. You know, he says, we're going to deport criminal aliens. You know, technically, Biden already does that. Um, so it's like, that's not like that big of a deal. You have to really stress mass deportation because you have to strike fear into the immigrants. So then they'll self-deport. And if they all feel like they're going to be rounded up by SWAT teams and other things, they'll just head out home. So if you're saying like, we're going to do mass deportation, you only need to have a few examples of that to create, to send the message of like, you're not welcome here. You're going to need to leave. Otherwise, we're going to pick you up and make you leave. And so that's the that, so those are the two things that Trump has on. But DeSantis is having this trouble with outflanking. And so he's settling on the gay issue, um, which I think is going to go in a direction where DeSantis is going to try to outflank him. And he's going to go on a stance. He's going to settle on a stance that's not even his own, but he's going to encourage his online supporters to do this. But it's going to have problems when it comes to election time. And it's not even going to win over these people because those people who may be convinced by it are already strongly attached to Trump. And they view him as their leader and their representative and a symbol of them. And they're not going to abandon that because DeSantis found an image of Lady MAGA, who I don't even think has ever met Trump. And the video didn't highlight it. It's just like Lady MAGA. And it's such like a throwback to 2020. That's like... I haven't heard of Lady MAGA in like two years. And yet this video brings it back. It's like something frozen in time to win over <laughs> what people were concerned about in 2020 and 2021. So uh, it's just in a weird ad. I know I can see already the comments like, it was an incredible ad. If this had Trump had done, this would have been better. It's like, yeah, um, no. First off, Trump would campaign wouldn't release something that forced and lame they would do something that would actually appeal to his actual, the audience of GOP primary voters. It'd be something stupid boomer. It's like the, it's like the video that Trump released when uh, DeSantis announced on Twitter space. He did the Twitter space, which had like DeSantis and Satan and George Soros and Adolf Hitler. It's like very boomer. It was like very funny, but the boomers would see this like, Oh, I get this. This is funny. They wouldn't do something weird that they're not going to get. Um, and other videos that are done that are pro-Trump are actually done by independent creators who are actually talented. It's not done by super PAC consultants. So that's my opinion on the video. Um, I, but they're going to do more of this lame stuff. This is the last thing. Unless DeSantis's people or Casey DeSantis went over and told uh, the PAC and the war room to stop doing this shit. This is weird and it's pissing off people and no more of this. But I, I have a feeling they're going to still try to do this lame online right culture forced attempts that are just going to get even worse with DeSantis. It'll probably be even one about like his tax policy or something uh, with that. Now on to the Cotton Elite questions. We've got two today. But as a reminder, you too can you too can get the power to ask questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the Cotton Elite option at Highly Respected Substack. And that's at Highly Respected 
www.substack.com and make sure to sign up for the IQ Summits while you're there. People are getting so much injection of knowledge that they're getting too smart. They, they're wor- it's working too effectively for them. The first question comes from Jay and it's building off my IQ supplement and the changes in online right culture and what's been happening now. And he's saying that he's having a lot of fun from Twitter spaces and he's wondering what my uh, opinion on that. He's like, my topic for you, Twitter culture back then and now, do you think the spaces are as fun as I do? I think that Twitter spaces are pretty fun. I think they do add a lot of that kind of authentic culture community there because people banter back and forth there's a lot of fun topics happening there's even dueling uh twitter spaces that are happening i don't really participate in it much because uh, you know i'm actually for a podcast host i don't listen that often to podcast uh, spaces and a lot of times when you have like online uh twitter spaces people are talking about a variety of topics and it's like listening in onto a conversation but sometimes you don't feel like you're that part of that conversation. Sometimes there's like interesting moments that happen. You know, people lose their cool and then they go off and it's like very funny. And I think a lot of people enjoy that. And it offers that experience of like a friend simulator in a good possible sense. I'm not saying you guys don't have friends, but people really enjoy that from podcasts. And tons of people enjoy that from podcasts where they have like multiple hosts and they banner back and forth and you feel like you're a part of that conversation and you're listening in on this great conversation between two friends uh that's obviously not happening with i respect it as it's just me talking to you but a lot of people like that so i'm positive about the twitter spaces i think it also adds some interesting interactions with the larger spaces where people from a right wing perspective argue with somebody from the left or a normie perspective and it brings out a lot of our ideas so it's it's definitely good. I, I have a positive opinion about it. I think they um, brings a lot of fun back to Twitter, and not everything so negative and heavy handed. And it's also the Twitter spaces. There's trying to be a lot of levity to it. You know, people aren't going off on black pills or serious discussion. Like people like to, uh, you know, shoot the shit, banner back and forth, and have a good time. And I think that's like very important in our online spaces to ensure that we're always having a good time. So that question came from Jade. Now the second question comes from Tom. Tom asks, or Tom talks about, Dear Scott, I've been reading Amrin's old articles from the 90s and came across one titled, Selma to Montgomery 30 years later. What went on there was utterly disturbing, like a weeks-long Walpurgis knocked. Something I noticed was the Libtar journalists in the North, shocked by the debauchery and perversion they saw, decided to report on it, but their editors censored them because they didn't want any negative coverage of the civil rights movement. Why has the media always been like this, even all the way back then? What are the realistic solutions to the problem of leftist monopoly of the media? Well, first, the media has always believed this. I mean, the media has always been liberal. They've always been dedicated to this idea that we can all get along and we need to have a race-blind and racially equal society and that any type of racial awareness is evil and that must be destroyed. And so they've always had this opinion for a very long time, probably even going back to the 40s, even though local newspapers would reflect the opinions of the local population. If they had a local population had a very different opinion from this, you know, the media would maybe move to reflect that. You could see this in the 40s. But over time, the national media, which there was a more development of a national media, bigger development of these uh, TV stations, and they all had an agenda that was very opposed to what the majority of white Southerners thought. And they went down there this with this 
preconceived notion that they wanted to implement and saying like we're going to show a bunch of bigots hurting these innocent uh, you know blacks and that everything is that's wrong down there is due to racism and bigotry and we're going to expose this for the rest of the public and then a lot of the people from the north weren't aware of the real circumstances right there they just see these horrible images of fire hoses and dogs attacking you know black kids or you know cops beating up these peaceful protesters and that's all they see and there wasn't like an alternative media to show like the other story i mean some of the local papers in alabama and stuff would share that story but that wouldn't get reach a national audience so that's why the media was operating in that way and so they firmly believe this stuff and they believe this stuff all the time and it's the same we saw this as i early talked about the george floyd revolutions where they you know they had the cnn guy in front of a burning building saying they're mostly peaceful you know, they'll, they'll, they were still, they warped Americans' minds on those riots and turned them into a powerful, noble a revolution that was largely peaceful, but except for a few bad actors, a police agitators, all they tried to claim that a white supremacist started the riots in Minneapolis, which that was just frankly totally bullshit and totally untrue. But that's how they tried to portray this stuff, and a lot of people unfortunately believed it. Media still wields a lot of power, but the solution to that is to have the development of independent media and social media as it worked in 2016 when there wasn't the censorship and there was able ability to reach a large audience without these censors getting in the way. That was how it worked. And I think you're seeing a lot of that return under Elon Musk, even though there's a lot of downsides to this, there's a lot of stupidity coming in there and a lot of um, ridiculous conspiracy theories about weather machines and other things. But at the same time, a lot of people are being exposed to ideas they would have otherwise never heard about from the mainstream media that they're now hearing about, such as the uh, racial crime statistics that Elon Musk was sharing and sharing it to you know millions of people. And that's now being discussed by millions of people. And a lot of people weren't aware of those that weren't aware of that data. And now they are. And so that's really the solution to it is to have the development of independent media that's able to go around the mainstream media to deliver the truth and the facts to ordinary Americans. His last question, I'm not sure how to answer this, but he asks, like, do you, uh, on a different note, I know the poster Nemitz, but what is Nemitz's world? Um, <laughs> I'm not quite sure what would be Nemitz's world. I guess it'd be a very black-pilled, uh, but very uh, almost too honest viewpoint of what's going on in the world and saying that. It's like Nemitz's world is that because uh, he would always drop uh, nuclear black pills. He's not posting as much anymore, but I like Nemitz. You know, sometimes he's a little bit too black-pilled or a little bit too says, says things. I, I didn't agree with his vaccine stance, of course. Uh, but I, I appreciate him. I'm glad he's there. He's definitely a useful counterpoint to a lot of the popular stuff on there, which is almost, you know, too obsessed with being white pilled to the point of ignoring facts and actual things that are going on. And it's use and it's necessary to have those type of correctives. But you shouldn't overcorrect in some ways that Nemitz and others do. And that would be his world. I don't know if I'm answering this question correctly, but I'm pro Nemitz. I, you know, he does a lot of good work. You know, he's translated a lot of, of these books of frontline stories from the Russian, from the Ukraine war, mostly from the uh, years prior to Russia's formal invasion last year. He's done a lot of good work with that. He's, you know, very good book poster. So I'm very pro Nemitz. Um, 
But I'm not quite sure what his world is. So that's the note we'll end on. And that is it for today's podcast. Hopefully you guys got enjoyed the content we provided today and the information I utilize and and offer to you. So hopefully that was all good. We're going to have a great IQ supplement later this weekend. Tomorrow is July 4th, so make sure to celebrate Independence Day. The big holiday. It's one of the biggest holidays we have. It's one of the. If we did have July Fourth today, I would have not had a podcast. Uh, last year, I did not have the podcast on July Fourth because we were busy celebrating America. But you know, it fell on a Tuesday this year, so we had to go with the podcast forward. We may have a July Fourth or Revolutionary War themed IQ supplement later this week. I'll think about it. So be on the lookout for that. So until next time, stay respected.